I believe that what my accident did was it gave me perspective and humility that wouldn't have existed otherwise. All right, today on the Gravity Podcast, we are here with Brian Boger. Brian is a human behavior and performance coach who teaches clients to leverage self-awareness and intentionality to become the most authentic version of themselves, who they already are. Brian helps executives, entrepreneurs, athletes, and growth-minded individuals learn this transformative approach that cultivates perspective, motivation, and direction to help them align their lives with their true purpose and defy their own expectations. He teaches not just to accept change, but to embrace pain in order to avoid suffering. Brian learned the wisdom of resiliency through his own early experiences with pain. When he was just seven years old, his left arm was detached in a vehicle accident. Instead of succumbing to suffering because of the injury, Brian fully recovered and flourished with a reattached arm. He learned early how to move beyond what happened to him by creating an intentional mindset. Brian is a proud Phoenix native and even a prouder father of two children with his beautiful wife. Being a dad is the most significant part of his life, which helps Brian understand and effectively coach clients to find their best work-life integration. All right. We are here today with Brian Bogert, who uh, I am really excited to have on the show today. Brian, welcome. Hey, man. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you and your audience, brother. Yeah. You know, you've got a really uh, important story and inspiring story and had a chance to see a lot of the content that you're putting out and what you're up to. And there's so much happening. It's really exciting. Um, but I know that the audience is really going to get a lot out of hearing kind of all of the journey as we do here on the Gravity Podcast, kind of going back to the very early days, the beginning of your life. Tell me a little bit about kind of your childhood and your kind of family dynamics and, and kind of that early first part of your life. Dude, I love that. You know, it's funny. I, I often talk about a very specific story. And so this is a cool opportunity to dig into different directions. And I got chills when you said that. Tell me about your early childhood. Because my early childhood is, is somewhat of a blur, but I had some really cool experiences. I, uh, I've got some phenomenal parents. I've got a brother who's 14 months older and I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, lived in Southern California for a very short period of time. And then had a really cool opportunity, uh, was in Australia for a year and a half, and then was in England for a year and a half. And both my brother and I adopted those accents because we were so young. We were pre-age six. And so it's funny to look back on old home videos and see either one of us have an Australian or a British accent <laughs> and, uh, and how that kind of transitioned back. Uh, we came back to the States uh, right around the time I was six. And we ended up... Uh, getting a house that we were going to all renovate. And we ended up living with my grandma for a little while, which also served some really interesting uh, experiences and memories. And then one of the big stories that, uh, that, again, most people have kind of identified with all this stuff is as we were renovating this house, my mom, my brother, and I went to the closest Walmart to get a one-inch paintbrush. And as we walked out of the store, uh, we got to the car. I rushed to the car because I've always had an excitement bigger for life. I wanted to get home and put that one-inch paintbrush to use. And my mom and my brother were a few feet behind me. And so I want everybody to just pause for a second and imagine like walking out of a store after a successful shopping trip and turning their head to see a truck barreling 40 miles an hour right out. And so we, we got to the car. And as we were there, a truck had pulled up in front of the Walmart and the driver and the middle passenger got out. 
passenger all the way to the right, felt the truck moving backwards. So he did what any one of us would do, and he moves over to put his foot on the brake. Instead, he hit the gas. Combination of shock and force threw him up onto the dashboard, and before we knew it, he was traveling 40 miles an hour across the parking lot right at us. He went up and over the median, went up and over the tree in the median, and we think I was holding onto the handle of the car while I was waiting for my mom to catch up and unlock the doors. So it threw me to the ground, ran over me diagonally, tore my spleen, left a tire track scar on my stomach, and continued on to completely sever my left arm from my body. So there we were. It was August 10th, 115-degree day in Phoenix. We're laying on the asphalt, which adds another 10 to 15 degrees. And fortunately, my guardian angel walked out of that store and watched the whole thing happen. She saw the life and limb scenario that was right in front of her, and she came over and immediately stopped, put her hands on the wound to stop the bleeding and instructed some innocent bystanders to run inside, grab a cooler, fill it with ice so that my arm could be on ice within minutes. Otherwise, I wouldn't, there'd be no chance I'd have an arm today. And so that was kind of the very first part of, uh, of that journey. And I was fortunate. There was three surgeons in the Valley at the time that were even capable of such a surgery. One of them was out of town. One of them had worked a 12-hour day. And the last had just worked a 12-hour day and said, you know what, this is a kid. I got to give him a fighting chance. So he goes into this process with crazy levels of awareness and intentionality, knowing that this wasn't going to be a one, two, or three surgery recovery. It'd be five, 10, 15, 20 surgery recovery. So he went in and started flagging and tagging all of the nerves and veins and muscles that he was going to have to use in later surgeries for reconstruction. And so very, very lucky to have this man been in my life because he, later on, as we dig into other parts of my story, you'll see he actually has an entry point about 15 years after that as well. But ultimately, right, I'm here happy, healthy, and productive with a reattached arm, 100% because of him. And I know a lot of people weren't expecting it probably to go there today. I do have a very, very unique story. But but what I've learned in all that time of doing this is what's important is we pause, become aware of the lessons we can extract from those stories, and then become intentional with how we apply them in our lives. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I don't think on this show we've had somebody who kind of in the opening intro, early first question, uh, kind of tells a story like that. It's a, a story that I know you have told countless numbers of times, and it, it kind of rolls off your tongue. And to those that maybe know you or have heard it before, there, there's something that kind of feels like a little normalized about it, but but it's it's not at all. I mean, it's it's incredibly intense and it's it's really profound and and significant. And you know, like you said, well pause, learn the lessons and and then you know go forward. Uh, okay, but th- that couldn't be that simple to start with. So so let let's back up a little bit. First of all, I'm just kind of curious, you know, kind of the traveling around the world and mm-hmm. and um, going I want to I want to understand your parents a little better I want to understand yeah. your family a little better I want to understand you know what were you guys doing and and why and kind of what, what were I want to know these people a little bit because yeah. obviously you know they, they're gonna play a big role in what happens in your life yeah huge huge so start with my dad my dad um, my dad grew up in Kansas City Missouri and they were in he was extremely poor dirt poor he was the oldest of five brothers grew up in a house that, um, you know, there was alcoholism and abuse and, and a whole bunch of things. And so he kind of took the brunt and protected his brothers and his mom and all of those things. So he just was always a fighter out of the gate, got into a lot of trouble. The only reason I say this is because, you know, it was, it was during the sixties, early sixties. He was, a, he was a kid. He was born in the fifties. Um, 
And all of a sudden, it's like they're in the middle of all of the racial divide and they're in a really, really devastated neighborhood. They're one of only three white families in the entire neighborhood. And so not only did they have abuse in the house, but they were getting the crap beat out of them every single day when they went to school because they were different, right? And, and it was in this crazy tense time. And so ultimately, he just knew how to put himself into scenarios with different people and immediately blend in, build relationships, build diverse adversity. And he was given an opportunity when he was younger to ultimately get out of that life. And he went into the military. And so he joined the Air Force when he was 18 years old and ended up becoming an Air Force uh, airplane mechanic, which ultimately put him to, into a position where he was able to go into the private sector, which is what led us across the world. So he was very high up with a company that's called Allied Signal, or was called Allied Signal. It was originally Garrett. Allied Signal acquired it. And now it's Honeywell. But he was basically had reps all over the world. And so he had an opportunity to, to put himself in the scenario with all of his reps in Australia and England. And he traveled to, I don't know, countless countries. So although we lived in those spots, he still would go to that region and then travel around. My mom, completely different story. Uh, she's a fascinating individual by herself. Again, a one of five. She's the middle child, not the oldest. And we always kind of joke. It's like she grew up and she was like the Brady Bunch. And so she's a little bit younger than my dad. She primarily grew up in late 60s, early 70s. And it literally was like the Brady Bunch family. You know, successful dad, successful mom, just like uh, this great family unit in, in the way that it was set up. And she grew up in Southern California. And so two polar opposite backgrounds. And they ultimately ended up finding each other in the late 70s in Phoenix, Arizona. They both had moved here for a variety of different reasons. And this is kind of interesting because my dad uh, met her through one of his good friends who she was dating at the time and ultimately decided he's like, I want to be with her. And he you know, didn't do anything to, to disrupt it, but he had his eyes set on the prize and fell in love with her immediately. And the second that he had a window to date her after they'd broken up, he went in and did it. Three months after they were dating, they were married. And it was only you know a year or so after that, that they started having kids. So super, super cool story, right? Sure. And, and what was the kind of experience like before your accident to kind of, how would you describe your family? Were, were you guys close? Was it extremely was it close? joyful? Was it fun? Was it tough? Was your, how was your dad? I mean, I don't know, coming out of that childhood in, yeah. the, in the military, you know, what were they, how would you describe the, the uh, environment? Uh, phenomenal. Uh, I have a phenomenal family unit. I'm very close with all of them still. You know, I think as with every family, there's dynamics that sometimes are difficult or challenging or what have you. Um, you know, my dad, for sure, he, he, I think the man he is today is not necessarily the man he was when I was a little kid, right? And I think that it's one of those things where the more layers he shed, all the crusty exterior that he had to build up early in his life, right? Now we see the soft, squishy old man that he is. And, and it's yeah. cool to see him with my kids. But, yeah. but as, as a kid, I knew no different. And my dad was always loving. He, you know, despite what he came from, he never raised a hand to any of us, right? Like never, we were never in that type of scenario where we felt unsafe. In fact, it was quite the alternative. My dad was always the protector, right? And that's what, that's the role he played with his brothers and his mom. So um, my, my mom just, I mean, she's got endless energy. People always talk about her as like the energizer bunny and her joy in life is bringing joy to other people. And so you put those two forces together. They're both extremely mentally strong. They're both unbelievably diverse people in the experience they have, the people that they've run across. And I think the way they complement each other was awesome. And my brother was yeah. my best friend. 
Um, I mean, when we were traveling around the world together, when you're moving every, you know, six, 12, 18 months, and you've got a brother that's 14 months apart from you, you're just best friends, right? Because you're, you're, you have an instant playmate. Right, right. So, okay, that kind of dynamic, uh, I would imagine, as you then fast forward to the accident, has got to be life saving to have that kind of a family unit, a brother that's a best friend, uh, two loving parents that are together, and uh, you know, talk about what happens after the accident. I mean, you started to describe the surgeries. I'm just you know wondering, this has got to be totally consuming for your whole family at this point in your life. They were committed to doing what was necessary. And they both had to carry a burden that they probably never signed up for in terms of the family dynamic and the roles they needed to play because of what my situation put on the entire family. I would not have survived if it wasn't for that family mm-hmm. unit. Yeah. And, 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 and boy, you know, what an amazing element of the story. I mean, the whole thing is pretty, uh, is pretty impactful, but to kind of hear that beautiful uh, response by your family. You know, oftentimes on this show and in general, you know, there's a lot of focus on trauma. There's a lot of focus on, um, you know, abuse challenges uh, that, you know, people experience. Very common, comes up a lot on the show. Um, We do have people that talk about really unconditionally loving households and committed relationships. It's not as often. Um, it's 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 unfortunately um, not as often as as the as the abuse and the trauma. Now mm-hmm. here you have trauma. I mean there there's all around trauma. But uh, what an amazing uh, story to just kind of highlight for a second that you've got so much love and so much commitment to one another. I mean I'm just thinking about your brother. You said your brother was eight at the time. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so I mean. Tell me a little bit more. He he goes into therapy. Um, your your parents uh, they bring him into therapy. I mean, he he goes in there and and accepts it and and you know kind of decides that you know he needs to be a certain way. I mean, at eight years old, it's pretty young. It's pretty impressive. You know, tell me a little bit more about just how that went. Yeah, you know, I think what's funny is I haven't really talked to him a whole lot about this later in life. Uh, I know the stories and. You know, again, I think so much attention was on me, and my parents had to put so much focus on me for me to just survive and for me to start to recover. You know, he was uh, to to his misfortune, he had to be shuffled off to grandparents' houses and friends' houses and things for people to watch him and take care of him. So his life was immediately uprooted as a result of this. You know, like I say, it impacted every one of us in, in its own ways. Even though I was the one that experienced the injury, um, so I'm actually very grateful that you're you're asking these questions because they are a significant part of the story. You know, I think he did. He, you know, we had just come back to the States. His playmate was gone. He needed to go start to heal and have some conversation. You know, he would have, he'd be bent over in pain because of stomach aches and anxiety before he'd go to school on certain days. Cause he was worried about the transition back and worried about me and carrying that emotional burden. And it was, it was a few years for him to really work through that and release it. And, you know, if I'm being honest, I think there's probably elements of that that has affected him his entire life, right? Mm-hmm. As is the case with, with things that have affected me. It mm-hmm. certainly affected our relationship as well for a little while, which was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think this How was so? a, I think it was a protection mechanism more than anything, but it's like his playmate was gone. 
And mm-hmm. so, you know, it went How from did us, it impact your relationship? You tell, tell me a little bit about that. And so because I think his playmate was gone, I think what happened is he pulled himself away for a little while. I don't think he intentionally did it. He's an eight-year-old. But the reality of it is that crazy undivided connection that we had for the first seven, eight years of our lives was immediately fractured a little bit. And so it separated us for a little while. I think we argued a lot more. I think there was a subtle competitiveness um, because of the attention factor that was kind of factored in. And so what's, what's really amazing about my brother, how it affected our relationship is I think we were not as inherently close, but we were always loyal. And so that's mm-hmm. something that has never changed with my brother and I. And he and I are, he's one of my best friends today. We ultimately mm-hmm. found our way back to each other, but there was probably a 10-year period after the accident where I think we were trying to establish ourselves as individuals. There was a competitiveness with, our, with, with how close we were, how close we were in school. Once I started playing sports again, we were highly competitive from that. So it was like, you know, we were at each other's throats versus best friends. But every single time either one of us needed each other, we were always there. You know, mm-hmm. I vividly remember there was a time I was 10 years old and I was being bullied because I was different in school. And my brother always knew. He's like, my, my brother's got this. He like, he just knew. Until I was in a position where I needed help, he just, he didn't step in. But he was always there watching, making mm-hmm. sure, right? And so I was being bullied on the bus on the way home. I get off the bus and this kid's literally trying to fight me. And my brother looks at me and he's like, do you want some help? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. here we are. And he just stood right by my side. And he's like, look, you guys need to leave. You need to back off. He was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He knew Mm -hmm. that I was okay. But at the same time, he was like, look, even though we're fighting, even though we're here, we're blood, we're brothers, I've always got your back. And so that loyalty and love has never wavered between the two of us, even though there was a while we weren't close in terms of what we did together. Yeah, which is also not terribly uncommon. I mean, for Mm -hmm. brothers close in age, you know, just to have a little competitiveness, a little distance, you know, that that by itself isn't really uncommon. But what I think is really important is that it didn't become the relationship. It was just kind of a phase yep. uh, that, that really, you know, that loyalty was always there and that the, you know, kind of uh, maturity came in and you guys were able to really become yep. the, the best friends that you are today. And, and and talk to me a little bit more. You mentioned the bullying. You know, what was it like, you know, post-surgery? Now you're, you know, kind of getting back on your feet, back into the world. Uh, was the bullying a common experience? What was it like to to be unique and, and have people at that age? You know, that's a tough age. People aren't self-aware. They're not all yeah. kind. They're dealing with their own stuff. They're going to take it out. You know, what was your um, kind of outside the family system? What was your, your life like? It was tough. It was tough for a lot of years. You know, I was forced to grow up pretty quick. And so I, I just because of the worldly experience that we had, and then you layer on, on top of this, this accident that forced me to grow up. I, I, I never felt like I connected with my peers just in general, but then I was also an outsider. I mean, you know, I went back to school. The very first semester that I went back to school was second grade, and I actually had to be homeschooled. Um, we had an in-school, te- uh, in-home teacher that came and, and did all of the education for the first semester to get me up to speed. Second semester, we go back, and I couldn't go out on the playground, right? I was still in bandages. I was still in a sling. And so I was basically in the room with anybody else that was in the category of special needs that couldn't be out on the playground who needed an aide or needed an assistant. And so I was immediately an outsider. 
So even though I was 100% okay inside and mentally and where I was at, my body was different. And that, that was apparent. And then, you know, fast forward basically all the way through middle school, it was very apparent that I was different. I got bullied a lot. I had a couple of very close friends. But outside of that, I was always the different one. And so I was teased, constantly bullied. And I think that people in general don't know how to deal with people who are different. And, mm-hmm. and I was very, very aware of that at a very young age. And I was also very aware of, of what that actually meant for me. I never wanted to be the victim. I never wanted to be the center of attention. And what drove me in a lot of ways, frankly, probably was part of the bullying because I didn't want to be labeled around what I could or could not do. And so I constantly would find ways to challenge the perception of what other people had of me, right? So if they thought I couldn't play a certain sport, I'd go figure it out. If they thought I couldn't learn how to water ski, getting out of the water with one hand, I'd figure it out. Like it, it put a different level of mental toughness in there because I constantly had to overcome the expectations. And so it wasn't so much my self-limiting beliefs. It was the external beliefs of what I'd be capable of, which by the way, are equally if more damaging because often that ingrains a self-belief. But in my case, it actually fueled me to demonstrate like you can live beyond the limits that people place on you. And that's, that's part of what started to get me down this path of really helping other people discover that. So it was tough. Um, and it wasn't until high school that I started to really bring peers and peer connections started to establish it grew a little bit even more into college, but it's never been uncommon for me to have my core group of friends be 10, 15, or 20 years older than me because mm. that's who I've connected with and the wisdom and the way that they don't have to compete. There's not, they're not worried about what people look like or how they act. You know, Until you're in an adult phase, people just don't operate that way because they're threatened by something that's different. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I, I'm curious, this, this kind of drive... The um, what comes across as a very kind of grounded and yet confident and and self aware human being, you know that you are today. Uh, you know, tell me a little bit about kind of how you were actually thinking about this. You know, in high school, were were you thinking like, hey, uh, these guys are going to fuel me? And did you have the kind of self awareness? That, that obviously not the same that you have now, but I mean, were you even thinking kind of yeah. in this way or, or was it just like a, a kind of an instinctual reaction? And I guess the second part of that question is how much of it comes from this, this way of being comes from the accident or is this kind of just who you are? You said early on that, you know, you felt like you were the one that was chosen because you were the one that knew how to handle this. Or, do you, you know, what is your belief on the impact of the accident versus just kind of your God-given DNA? That's, uh, so by the way, both very phenomenal questions. And I'm going to answer them as best as I can in order. The, the answer is there was a combination of instinctual reaction and awareness even through high school. The reality of it is is it did force me to grow up and it forced me to take a really long and hard look at myself. Um, And the first time I remember doing that was I felt myself getting stuck and feeling sorry for myself within the first couple of days after the accident. And I vividly remember, I felt like it was a dream. And as I woke up from the dream, you know, the proverbial dream and realized that this is reality, I felt sorry for myself. We're in the ICU and we've got families around us that are coming up to us and saying, we're, we're so sorry. What can we do to help? What can we do to help? 
come to find out their kids are in the ICU because they have a terminal illness and might not live two more months. And so immediately I was knocked out of that feeling sorry for myself. And that was one of the other major lessons I learned is not to get stuck by what's happened to me, but get moved by what I can do with it. So I remember distinctly that switch flipping in my head right around the time I was seven, right after my accident, where it was like, okay, I have my life. Whether or not my arm is going to be fully recovered, it was going to be years before we knew at that moment how much use and function I'd have out of it. But I do remember my self-awareness, my intuition were always very high. I do believe that this honed it. Meaning because I didn't want to be the center of attention, I was really good at reading other people or I got really good at reading other people, reading scenarios, reading environments, and my emotional intelligence went through the roof. The problem was I didn't have the maturity of the experience to learn how to apply it yet, right? But I learned how to read people and read myself and be very aware. So it was a combination of intentionality and a combination of like instinct, as you asked. And then the second part of your question is, is like how much of the accident shaped who I am versus this is just who I was. And my parents will tell you that this is who I am. And it's always who I am. They said, I came out of the womb, like the world blazing on fire. I remember all of my early teachers saying, Boger, you're going to be the president of the United States someday. And I don't say that to impress. I say that to say, I was really gifted in a number of different ways. And I was blessed with those gifts. I believe that what my accident did was it gave me perspective and humility that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, I was speaking full sentences at 18 months. I rode, I told my dad when I was two years old to take the training wheels off my two wheel bike. And I got on my bike and rode it because I decided that's what I was going to do. I remember that, right? Very vividly. When stuff like that happens, if you don't have something knock you down that's really big, right? I, I, I would be afraid for who I would be if it wasn't for the perspective and humility. Because I think I would be the most arrogant person on the planet. Because if I looked at my first seven years of life, everything came easy. All of a sudden, I'm being faced with struggle. Interesting. Yeah. Really, really interesting. Tell me a little, because we talked just a little bit about this kind of who you are piece. And you know, you used the word blessed. I think I did too. What is your faith? How do you kind of see any kind of... Uh, you know, God element in this. You know, a lot of people who have been in really life altering situations like you have or experienced tragedy or, or trauma or abuse of some significant kind, you know, often struggle with this and some mm-hmm. really see it very clearly. Tell me, you know, where, where are you with kind of your faith? So I'm going to talk about it a little bit more generally, but I'm going to answer your question. I 100% believe in a higher universal power and a higher universal connection and a higher universal energy. 100%. I think that there are a whole lot of different ways that people compartmentalize that in belief systems, in, in religion, in spirituality, and what have you. And so the reason I talk about it generally is because my beliefs are my beliefs and everybody else's are theirs. I do believe, though, that everything happens for a reason. I do believe that we are all given certain elements of gifts that are unique to us, that it's a matter of us trying to find or the world helps us find what those gifts are and how do we translate them into the world. And I do believe that all of it is connected. So I believe wholeheartedly that I was put here for a reason. 
I believe wholeheartedly that this, this accident and other elements of my story, which I'm sure we're going to get into, happened for a reason, to teach me lessons, to better prepare me for why I'm here and who I am and how do I translate that into the world. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me, it's like, well, would you ever change or take back the accident? And my answer with zero hesitation has always been absolutely not. Like, are there moments where I wish my body looked more normal? Yeah. Especially when I was a teenager or in college when I really cared, right? Like I don't, I mean, I still care about how I'm healthy, but I don't really care what I look like anymore. Um, you know, there's certain things that have been more of a struggle for me. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's a pain, right? Sometimes one of my hobbies is working on vehicles and literally turning wrenches. Are there times when I wish that I had full use of my left hand because getting at an angle with my left hand would be easier than getting to it at some weird angle with my right hand? Yeah. But can I figure out how to do it anyway? Yes. And so, you know, I do believe that my faith is very high. And what I've really done over the last few years is really turned into what I believe is that higher universal energy and consciousness. And I've really dedicated myself through a meditation practice to be able to tap into that in a more profound way so that I can channel it in a really effective way. And as I've done that, the more I've done that, the more I'm effective and the more I am who I am. And, and that only perpetuates my belief that everything happens for a reason and we can all tap into that universal power. Yeah. I, uh, I share that belief and, and I think you're right. Everybody has their own kind of version of that. Not everybody. Um, a lot of people don't share that belief but people that do, you know, can find it in a number of different ways. Mm-hmm. You know, I've grown to call it God because I don't know what else to call yeah. it, but I think it is a universal energy. It's not kind of, for me, in the way that maybe I once thought of God, it's more in that it's everywhere. And yeah. I, I, that's um, how I've evolved as well. Correct. Yeah. And, and so uh, let's pick back up your journey in college um, and kind of as you start to move through college and beyond into your adult life, tell me a little bit about, you know, you mentioned, you know, some of the challenges, caring about what you look like and, you know, things like that. But, you know, what starts to emerge for you as you start to go into that kind of young adult and adult life? Yeah. So, you know, I have, I have to give acknowledgement to one very specific group of men that I was fortunate to be a part of in college. Um, I joined a non-Greek brotherhood that was called Rangi Agiza that was founded as a result of the Rodney King riots back in the early 90s around multiculturalism, diversity, uh, activism, and community service. And that broadened my horizon and my vision of really understanding the human element and human connection and people with different backgrounds, whether it's literally ethnic backgrounds, socioeconomic. And, you know, growing up in Phoenix for lack of a better term, even though I lived in different parts earlier than that, I also was kind of in a bubble, right? So the people I was around were all kind of the same. And this put me into a really diverse opportunity to be challenged by other people on my own thought process, as well as how to truly build like different levels of relationships. Um, But I'll tell you... It's interesting. Sorry to interrupt you, but it's interesting because I went to school in Tucson in the early 90s. And um, at that time, I remember there was a big controversy. I believe it was maybe in 94 or 5, somewhere around there. The Super Bowl was in in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, the state of Arizona didn't honor the Martin Luther King Day holiday. And there was a potential boycott. Um, And so I'm wondering, you know, growing up in Phoenix, 
Um, as you said, you know, not a very diverse place at the time, at least. What led you to want to join that group? Was it the riots? What I mean, what what was it that really had you seeking that out? I think I've just always had an intellectual curiosity and a curiosity for people that are different, right? And this is something that I think probably was a condition of being different in a different, you know, obviously in a different way. I didn't look different other than physically. It wasn't the color of my skin. It wasn't socioeconomic background, but I always, I was always an outsider. And so I think I was drawn to this group of individuals that were maybe in their own backgrounds or on that campus or in different areas of their life were outsiders in some capacity. And there was a common bond that brought us together. And that common bond actually catapulted into action, which allowed us to do some really cool things. I mean, this group founded the Women's Center, founded the Multicultural Center, founded right like all of these different things that were really about diversity and inclusion and bringing people together, right? And raising our level of understanding, awareness, and education for people of different backgrounds. And so I think literally it was probably just that I've always been interested in different people and I was drawn to it, but I didn't quite know what I was getting into or how much it would push me to grow, um, which, was, which was phenomenal. But I'll tell you, you know, we talked about this whole period of time where my emotional intelligence and reading became very, very strong. What I was not good at at that time was actually building on human connection because I was too closed off. Mm. I, put, I created a narrative for the world that I was good. I could handle anything. I could conquer whatever, right? I told you, I always wanted to break beyond boundaries. Well, I was like carrying a chip on my shoulder without the awareness of doing so that I constantly was in that mode trying to prove that I was good and I didn't need any help. Well, I'm out in Southern California. I'm a junior in college and I'm going snowboarding and I go down and immediately I felt my arm break. And fortunately, there was snow patrol right there. I waved him down. He came over and he said, what's going on? I said, I just broke my arm. I said, but I've got a pretty complex story. I need to tell you what's going on. And he said, there's no way you're sitting there as calmly as you are and you have got a broken arm. I said, trust me. I've been through a lot more pain than this, but trust me. He goes, all right, well, why don't we take off your jacket? And we take it off and my sleeve is bloody. The entire sleeve. He goes, I think you broke your arm. I was like, really? I was like, yeah, no, 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 duh. So anyway, we get there and I rebroke it. It was compound fracture. Normal, normal procedure in that would be to immediately go to surgery, repair the bone, clean up the, the potential infection. That's not what they did with me because they were afraid to. So I went mm-hmm. 10 months with my arm hanging by my side, went through seven surgeons who were afraid to touch me. And I re-experienced as a 20-year-old what I experienced at seven. Jeez. And what it made me realize is that, yes, we can be mentally tough. Yes, we have the ability to create whatever narrative we want the world to buy into. But because I had advocated for that narrative so strongly, the world believed it. So nobody was there for me. And mm-hmm. I didn't have the vulnerability or the courage at that time to ask for help. Looking back, had I been able to ask for it, I think that despite whatever narrative I'd created, people would have been there for me. Mm-hmm. Instead, I was isolated and I was alone because I didn't have the ability to do that. And so it literally pivoted my study of people to shifting to focusing on human connection, which really built in vulnerability and authenticity. And what I mean by authenticity is legitimately shedding the layers of what the world has told us we should be, who we need to be, the crusty exterior, the narratives, and getting back to the root of who I was at the core and trying to find ways incrementally over that next period of my life to bring that into fruition, bring that into reality. And so that's how it was for me entering into my adult life because this happened my junior year 
which trickled into my senior year because it was 10 months. And so it, it changed the way that I was interacting with people. It changed the way I was finishing up school. I started to shift more to the professional side. But then I really started to appreciate relationships and connection way more than I ever had. And mm. so that's really what that next period of my life happened. Now, I will tell you, my senior year, actually, I met her my junior year. We started dating my senior year, my wife, which is, which is a beautiful thing. And so she saw through all that craziness. But it's funny because she'll tell you that the first time she met me, I was standing in a corner at our brotherhood house at a party. And she said, there was like this cloud of mystery around you because you were just so closed off. You were guarded, mm. right? Mm. And, and what's funny is she didn't know, and this was before my snowboarding accident. She literally was like, there was something about the mystery that attracted me to you. But she said, mm-hmm. there was also like this aura around you, like, don't come near me. Mm-hmm. And, and I think back on that now and I'm like, wow, that is like so profound that she saw that and witnessed that. She's probably the only person that ever articulated that to me. But how many people did I make feel that way? Did I make feel like they weren't welcome because I was guarding and protecting myself? So when I shifted to the vulnerability phase, that all started to change. Um, we dated throughout senior year. Um, I came back to Phoenix to start to work and she actually ended up moving here and finishing up school at ASU. And that whole next period was where I jumped into uh, my career. So I landed into risk management and employee benefits consulting uh, through a really interesting relationship and connection and uh, started and knock on wood, had some very early success, which gave me a lot of perspective, had opportunities to go run some offices early in my career and ultimately said, this isn't the right fit uh, for a variety of reasons. But I lobbied that into the opportunity to sit at the table with all of the regional presidents of a billion dollar publicly traded company uh, once a quarter to learn and observe. Uh, that's ultimately what led to the demise with me at the company because I saw what they were really focused on and it didn't align with where I wanted to be. So I made a decision to look elsewhere. But in the time I was there, it was cool. I got to mentor and develop and build a training program for new producers and you know, really start to perpetuate some of the training and development side of who I am, helping bring out that other side of other people. So yeah, I was curious, you know, just kind of that early first jump into the career, you know, oftentimes it, it seems to kind of ignore some of the elements of who you are, what you've learned, what's really kind of lit you up in, in college. I know for me, at least, I have a similar story where I met my wife uh, kind of midway through my undergraduate and you know, upon graduating, felt kind of the need to get into the the real life, uh, real world pretty fast. Yep. And, you know, some of those things that you study, that you might have hobbies, passions, the things that are, you know, energizing don't look like they can no. be careers. So, so you kind of take a similar path. I went into banking, you jump into, you know, this kind of corporate world. Tell me a little bit about that decision and yeah. then really how things start to open up and emerge for you, yeah. really, you know, kind of ultimately leading you to where you are today. Yeah. So it, what's interesting is I, I, throughout college, actually had set a whole bunch of goals for myself that all surrounded around the age 30. And, and a lot of them were professional. But, you know, I came out of school bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And, and if you'd asked me then, I would have told you I was going to be running that company <laughs> within 10 years or what, you know, I was going to climb the corporate ladder, not having a clue what that meant, right? Not right. having a clue of what real leadership was, not having a clue. Like I, I had little segments in my life, but I, I mean, I came out and, you know, I was the youngest guy who was, again, although I told you I shifted to vulnerability and authenticity, 
there was also elements in my early career where I could not be that way because I was the youngest guy in the room by a long shot in most scenarios. And instead of honoring that, which is what I would have, which now looking back is something I would have changed, like just be who I am. I felt the need to try to prove how smart I was, right? Mm -hmm. Because I wanted to climb the corporate ladder and be successful. And by the way, that worked in some ways, but it didn't really allow me to go deep on that human connection piece. And so this was more learning through that process. But yeah, brother, I mean, I was, I was going to grow up and and run the world and I had a major goal. I was like, I was all I want. If I ever make a hundred grand, I'm going to be happy. Right? Like that was like my sole focus. And, and I was blessed because I blew through that at a pretty early age. But it was one of those things where like, I didn't really know what it meant. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to be successful. No, having no perspective on that was, but I wanted to be successful so bad. And to your point, all those other things that like started to fill me and like make me feel good about who I was, I completely put all of them on the back burner. My health, mm-hmm. my fitness, my diet, my, like I went 110% into my career because I was like, yeah. I was so focused on proving to myself and to the world that I could do it. I mm. hadn't completely shed that layer that we talked about before. I just was yeah. more aware of it. Yeah. And so, and, and so, yeah, yeah tell me. So, so how does then, you know, ultimately, you know, getting into coaching and working with peak performers and public speaking and, you know, all that you're up to now, uh, kind of bridge that gap for me. How, how do you start to, honor those pieces that feel like you and yeah. also leave behind the things that don't feel in alignment. You know, tell me a little bit about kind of how you've been able to bridge that gap. Yeah. So I left that original company, I think when I was 24, 24-ish, ended up having an opportunity to, to buy in as a partner with a different firm and, and really help, help build the office in Phoenix. So when I joined, there was two of us and a quarter million dollars of revenue. They'd been around for 18 months. And I spent the first year I was really fortunate to have had the opportunity and I pushed for this to travel the country and go to all of our bigger offices, learn the culture, learn the leadership styles, learn the, the, the differentiators, learn how we could do this so that I could then bring it back to Phoenix and, and diffuse it into the Phoenix office or infuse it into the Phoenix office. And so I did that. I traveled for three weeks a month for the better part of a year. And that was hard for my wife and I, but it was something that we saw value in. And when I came back here, we started to infuse that in the culture. Over the course of the next 10 years, we added in three other partners. We built it from a quarter million dollars of revenue to over 15 million in the span of a decade and went from two of us to over 60 of us. And so the reality of it is that forces you to learn a whole lot. It forces you to understand leadership. It forces you to understand empathy and support and connection with people and leading and really starting to, to dive into those things. But I told you that I had all these goals that's run at age 30. I accomplished every goal that I set for myself for age 30, by 26 or 27 at the latest. And I never went through the process of reinventing what that looked like. A couple mm-hmm. of years after that, we had our first kid. Our son's almost seven now. And the first week I took off, and then the first six months went by like that. Mm-hmm. I, the first couple of years, couple of before that, I was getting back into sports, getting back into doing things for me, getting back into focusing on my health. All of a sudden, my son comes all that stops, but I didn't change my patterns. I was burning the candle at both ends and I wasn't ever there. I always said everything was going to be for my family, but if I'm not actually physically there, it doesn't matter what money I produce to give them freedom and experiences if I'm not there. So it was the first time in my life that I kind of felt really stuck and I didn't have the intellect, the tools myself, nor the people in my life to help me do it. So I started interviewing coaches and I interviewed 15 
I hired the 15th. And the reason I interviewed 15 is the first 14 were an inch deep and a mile wide. They had like some coaching certification or something like, but they had no relevance or credibility. They'd never built anything. They'd never really had their own personal adversity. And I was like, I don't know how they're going to help me. And then I landed on um, someone that uh, I'm forever indebted to. In the very first month of working with him, he said, Bogart, you got to be doing this. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, coaching and speaking professionally. I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm paying you a lot of money not to tell me how great I am, but to help me figure out these other things. I don't need something else added to my plate. He said, no, 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 like you don't get it. You've been on stages since you were age seven because you have such a unique story and you've always provided perspective, motivation, and direction. And because of everything that you've done from the leadership and philanthropic and community perspective, like you just naturally want to elevate and empower people. And you do that. So he's like, you just, I want you to listen to it. I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I literally gave it no thought. Over the course of nine months, he brought it up every single call. Have hey, you thought more about this? Nope. <laughs> Fuck off, buddy. Like, and then all of a sudden, the universe sent me a sign I couldn't ignore. And over the course of a month, it's every time I, I've, I've shared this, I just don't even believe it myself because it was just so surreal. But every single day for 30 days, somebody or some organization reached out to me, text, phone call, LinkedIn message, email, something, just to say thank you. Thank you for the impact. Thank you for the perspective. Thank you for the motivation. Thank you for that tip. Thank you for helping us think differently. Thank you because of the impact you've had on us. And the first week I was like, wow, this is weird. Like that was a really cool week. That was awesome. Second week, I literally thought to myself, this is crazy. What am I supposed to be hearing right now? The third week I was like, okay, it's so loud. I can't ignore it. And then the last week I just kind of sat with it and marinated. And literally it was a month later, I launched my human behavior performance and speaking business. So that was just over five years ago. And speak to that just for a second. You know, I think uh, a lot of people um, have an interest in this space and yet don't necessarily maybe have the courage to elevate it, um, fight it off. Also, you know, maybe don't see kind of the career in it or the um, ability to make money in it or to, you know, I don't know, maybe feel... um, fulfilled by it. Um, and that those are maybe just fears, but I'm curious, you know, did you just make that jump from your business into that mm-hmm. full time? Was it a transition? It was, a, it, was, it was literally almost a five-year transition. Um, okay. and, I, and when I jumped into it, I didn't have the intent to do it with 100% focus. Mm-hmm. It, it started with the intent to just be a side fulfilling business right? Because I was doing a lot of these things anyway, and I could put a little more structure and formality to it. And, and I was very humbled out of the gate because I opened the doors and announced the world I'm doing it. And things just started happening, right? Mm-hmm. Speaking events started happening, coaching events started happening, and it was all organic and coming to me, which was, again, a sign that, that I needed to pay attention to. And so, no, I did it, but I, I refined my craft. The first nine months of doing it, I actually used my prior coach's philosophies. Mm-hmm. It was a great yeah, place to launch and start and learn and test without having to go into it. Do I like it? Do I not like it? And what I discovered is I loved it. And although I got all these great things from his coaching philosophies when I was being coached, on the other side of the table, I felt like there was some gaps. And so I created my own philosophies over the course of the next few months. Sure. And then that evolved from there into a formal playbook, which evolved into coaching courses, which evolved into philosophies, which just started to build on each other the more and more I did it. Um, and then it became more who I was versus just coaching for the sake of coaching. It started to really bring into effect the intrinsic journey that I can take people on to raise their level of awareness and intentionality and everything and live a life with no limits and alignment. 
So I had to go through that evolution, which took the better part of two and a half years on the side while I'm growing this other business still. And what led to the transition was the more time I spent doing it, the more I wanted to do it. Mm. And what I really enjoy is building, not operating. Mm-hmm. So building the, our other business to where it was in, in partnership with my partners was a phenomenal opportunity. But I didn't really feel the need to get us bigger because it, wasn't, it was something I did. It wasn't who I was. Coaching mm-hmm. and speaking is who I am. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that I found a way to monetize it. So yeah. as I started doing this more, it also is a completely different level of fulfillment because my wins are other people's wins, right? Like when I'm good at what I do, I'm not winning. Other people are winning. Yeah. And that to me is like the greatest element of excitement. Yeah. That's, that's your win. Exactly. And so, you know, about a year ago, year and a half ago, my wife and I had one of those weekends where physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, we were just in sync. We went away without the kids. It was awesome. I mean, I get chills every time I talk about it because it was one of the best weekends I've ever had with my partner. And we're driving back to pick up our kids. And she looks over at me and she goes, how would you feel if you didn't have to go to the office? I looked at her and I said, what are you talking about, man? That's a loaded question, right? I mean, we built this office. It was great. Like financially, we were doing well. Like we had this great lifestyle. And she's like, well... And I'll I'll tell you more about this in a second, but I had some other health issues that really the prior two years really changed some perspectives for me. And, uh, but she said, I think you let these health things allow fear to enter into your world in a way I've never seen for you. Mm -hmm. And I think you've convinced yourself that you need this job, this partnership, that you need the money, you need the title, you need the prestige, you need the exposure. Like she's like, and I'm here to tell you, we don't. She said, I also feel like every day you're in insurance, you're dying a little bit inside. And I don't feel like you're having the impact on the world that you want, nor do I think you're even close to scratching the surface of your potential. So she said, we took a bet on you once. It paid off. She said, the person I believe in more than anybody on this planet is you. If, you want to take a, if we want to take a bet on you twice, let's double down and I'm all in. And so she gave me the permission to lean in and really evaluate this. And I literally, over the course of the last year, did a very thoughtful transition. I executed my buy, sell in my other business May 31st this year um, Mm. because I knew where I was headed and I know the impact I want to have. That's one of the things that Melter and I connected on is I want to impact a billion people in the next 25 to 30 years. And that's something that's going to commit every part of me for the rest of my life to hit something that audacious and that big. But man, I feel more like myself, more free, more fulfilled than I have in my entire life. And so for those people that spawn that question that are like doubting, how do I get into this? How do I do it? Everything starts with action and nothing happens overnight. And you can absolutely dip your toe in the water, test it, see if it's for you, and then work through a thoughtful transition plan. Mine was five years and it didn't start with thinking I was going to do this with 100% of my effort and time. It evolved there. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a few questions left before we start to come up on our time here. And it's uh, just something I want to highlight, you know, hearing you tell that story about you and your wife. And it seems like for you, the support system that's been around you from your family to your wife uh, has really um, been uh, incredibly instrumental and impactful um, mm-hmm. to be able to have people that say things like that to you that encourage you to really just live into who you are. Pretty, pretty awesome. Tell me a little bit about uh, um, you, you know 
you're involved in in so much now. Uh, I want to I want to know a little bit about simply saying Bogert's uh, bullets. You know all, all the kind of ways that you're out there in the world and what you're up to. Yeah. Um, but I also want to make sure that we hear a little bit about kind of the health issues, and I haven't forgot about the doctor that uh, you know you said reemerges and plays a role in your life. So maybe you could just. Uh, unpack all of that for us. Yeah, so that's a lot. I'll hit the doctor one right out of the gate because that one's a quick, easy one. Uh, when I rebroke my arm, I told you I went through seven surgeons. And uh, I landed with an orthopedic that agreed to take on the procedure as long as he partnered with a plastic surgeon. And they would do all of the scans and x-rays to see where the nerves and the veins because the anatomy of my arm was different. Well, the plastic surgeon he paired me with actually trained under my original doctor. And he said immediately when I told him who built my arm originally, he goes, why am I doing this surgery? And he picked up the phone and called Dr. Gottlieb. And Dr. Gottlieb has a son about my age. And, and you know, he spent a lot of years and a lot of time with me. So he had kind of had a fathered-son figure kind of a relationship. And he literally came in. He's like, he did the surgery pro bono when I was 20. He came in, he did all the soft tissue work. And when he came in, he, you know, he did the whole father-son type of thing. He's like, what are you doing, you idiot? Like, like you know, like, let's get you repairs. Yeah. You get back into the world. But like, come on, man. Uh, you know, so that, yeah, that was yeah. like a really cool thing. And then we've stayed like loosely in touch over the last, you know, period of our life, which was good. Yeah, you asked about a lot of different pieces. Yeah. Simply Saiyan was a really cool thing. And it was a really a combination of a couple of deals. I, I founded a group for Phoenix Children's Hospital called Patient Family Alumni Leadership. So it was prior patients or direct family member of prior patients that really wanted to help perpetuate family-centered care as well as have impact in unique programs that could really enhance that experience of hospital for families. Non-medical, right? And so we created an annual grant cycle where we would raise funds and we would gift it to a certain program. This was in, well, this was a long time. It was 2012 when we did this. Um, I was also going through a program called Valley Leadership, which is a group of 40 leaders in the Valley that get selected every year to go through a very intrinsic or a very extensive process with each other to learn about all of the intricacies of the different industries, government, uh, healthcare, all of the above in a major city like Phoenix, and then really build relationships and things. But we had projects that we did. Well, the project the group decided was to partner with an unfunded grant application that came through the PALS system, which was the Simply Saiyan app. And it's a mobile application that essentially teaches kids the simplistic elements of terms in a hospital setting. And it would do it in a way that would teach them what it is. It was age appropriate. It would prepare them for what the procedure was. So like for an MRI, for example, it had a picture of the MRI. It had, it had recordings of all of the sounds of the MRI so that kids could mentally prepare going into it so they could understand the experience before they were embedded in it. Um, and it was an amazing opportunity and a partnership. We brought together a lot of people, raised a bunch of money, um, and launched the first Simply Saiyan app, which has today been downloaded, geez, I don't even know the number anymore. I think it's like 80,000 times in something like 120 countries or something. And so, and it's, awesome. it's been now produced in multiple different languages. And what it started was actually a multiple six figure gift from a major communications company here in the Valley to create segments for very specific disease states. This one was more general. And so they created a full blown like series of things for um, the Simply Saying app for kids in hospitals. And it's a tool for, you know, hospitals, physicians, child life specialists, and everybody, teachers, parents, to help their kids understand there's a drawing board on it so they can literally show them, you know, like where the procedure is going to be, where the incision will be, the doctor can prep them for it. And it's, uh, it's, that's actually a very 
proud thing that, that I've been a part of. Um, and, yeah, and nobody's ever wonderful. asked me about that. So I thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Wonderful. And I know there was a lot there. You know, we'll start to wrap up here. I want to make sure you speak to anything else that is really important in your journey that we didn't cover. And also, you know, speak to uh, where people can find you yep. and, and what yep. it is that you really want to share with the world. So I'm going to share one last lesson. And this is this last health bit that I think was pretty interesting. So I, I, was, I was struggling with fatigue and cognitive dysfunction, brain fog for a number of years. Couldn't figure it out. Saw a number of specialists that all told me I was perfectly healthy and ultimately landed in a direction. I'll expedite the story, but we uncovered through an endocrinologist that I have a very rare and extreme case of growth hormone deficiency. I've got a tumor on my pituitary gland. And what's interesting is I learned about the real depth of the, the impact of this after I cut caffeine out of my diet because I was self-medicating with caffeine for a lot of years. Um, got back on medication, figured myself, like, it's all, it's all good now. I'm healthy now. But what it did was it really rattled my sense of self because so much of me, I identify with my intellect and my energy. And, and it really allowed me to see that I, one, um, wasn't living a life that was inspired as this was happening at the time, right? I had, I had been far into my career at this point, but I just wasn't inspired by it anymore. And two, this experience as I started to become healthy again, brought emotions back into my life in a way that I'd never experienced. So it was a couple of years back, I was laying on the couch with my daughter and she turned around, put her arm around me, gave me a kiss. We had just been playing and, and told me how much she loves me. And it literally brought me to tears from joy. So I, at that moment, really understood that I hadn't ever experienced joy in that way before. And if I had never experienced joy in that way, I also knew I couldn't have experienced pain, hurt, sorrow in the same way. So I went on this journey to really explore the full spectrum of emotions, unpacked that I was confined and contained by shame and a whole variety of other things. But what it allowed me to realize, I told you that prior period of my life was focused on human connection. I got really good at demonstrating vulnerability and authenticity from a tactical standpoint so that people would trust and lean in and open up to me. Mm -hmm. But it was always through the lens of sympathy, not empathy, because the emotion was lacking. Mm -hmm. Once I started to understand and explore this evolution of emotion, I realized human connection without emotion is not human connection. I did yeah. not have that profound lesson at that point in my life. And the last few years have been a blessing because the depth of relationships has expanded beyond what I had ever experienced in my life because I can actually bring emotion and connection into human connection in a way that I was mm -hmm. never able to. And so when mm -hmm. I shut off physical pain, I shut off emotional pain, which also shut off the joy and the freedom and the fulfillment and all these things. And so that's a lesson I want people to understand is embrace the pain of turning into unpacking the pain, whether it's emotional, mental, physical, heal yourself. Because if we don't feel, we don't heal. And if we don't heal, we don't ever connect. And I think that's what we all are hardwired to desire more than anything is human connection. That was the last piece I really wanted to give from a story and an evolution standpoint. Uh, people can find me, all my social handles are at Bogert Brian. Uh, my website is brianbogert.com. And, you know, we didn't really go into some of the coaching philosophies specifically. I love the format of this, by the way, because it's really just a cool story and way to talk about different elements of my life. But I do have a free resource for folks that are listening. It brings a lot of our coaching philosophies to help people understand and apply some of these same concepts that I described today, really getting clear on who they are so that they can shed the layers and become holistically who they are and demonstrate that through actions in their lives. So if they've got that life of alignment, go to nolimitspreludecom 
And this is going to be a, a succinct format of a lot of our coaching philosophies to really help people understand how to take themselves on that intrinsic journey. Yeah, I, I'm I, I'm glad that you've said that and that people can find those resources and, and get in touch with you. You're right; we didn't unpack the coaching piece as much, but I think you know from from my standpoint and what we're doing with this podcast, really unpacking you. Oh, I love and it. Really hearing your journey, I think you know says enough about kind of the work you're doing and and you know what you said there at the end. I think is really important and something I personally resonate with. I'm currently reading um, Body Keeps the Score and Big Believer in Meditation and how you know we move energy and how we heal. And this emotional piece, I think, is a really important piece, especially for men. You know, I think that, you know, you kind of, whether it's the way you're wired or what happens along the way, there's a tendency to really be in kind of a performance mode in a, um, you know, maybe uh, competitive, guarded, um, not vulnerable state. And, you know, the way you describe the vulnerability, I think is really important. It's, it's, you know, to be able to open yourself up, to be able to share yourself, to be able to be with your own pain and to share it, to be able to experience emotions mm-hmm. You know, one thing to be able to support other people, one thing to be able to be there for others, to, to, to you know, um, have sympathy and empathy for others, to be of service, great, 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 all really important. But not if it's also, I don't know how to do that for myself, Correct. right? At some point, you run out of gas doing that. It, it's not workable. That's, That's right. where, you know, body keeps the score. So I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's really important. I imagine it, you know, as you said, it's a big part of what you're coaching on. Oh, yeah. and, and maybe if you just want to wrap up by speaking to that, that would be great. Yeah. And, you know, I'll, I'll keep this part really, really simplistic. I think the core of what I do is really to just help people become more aware and more intentional in everything they do so they can become who they already are. Right. What we know is that what we are unaware of, we can't control. Right. And what we know is that there's 11 million bits of information that our minds process every second, but we're only consciously aware of about 40. So until we start to move the unconscious, the conscious, we can't take back control of our lives, but we all have the ability to do it. And that's what I try to help people do so that they can really bring joy, freedom, and fulfillment back into everything they do. Awesome. Brian, this is great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story, for doing what you're doing, for being who you are in the world and for supporting so many other people in doing that. It's been a pleasure to have you today. Thank you very, very much. Well, Brett, thank you. I think this format, this show, I think people learn a lot from stories. So the way that you're structuring this to allow people to tell their full stories and all the little intricacies of it is helping people, I think, recognize that we have a lot more in common than we realize. And we all face the types of similar themes and trends. And so this format, what you're doing is going to help a lot of lives, is helping a lot of lives. And I'm grateful to be a part of it. Thanks, Brian. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.